Welcome to Color Code, a podcast about race in Canada by the Globe and Mail. I'm Hannah Sung. And I'm Denise Belkasun. The theme for today's episode is the only one. Is it lonely to be the only one? We want to explore what it feels like to be the only racialized person at your school or in your workplace or in your community. So Hannah, have you ever been the only one? Yeah, <laughs> of course. Um, in many different contexts, I suppose. Um, I'm often the only, oh, non-white person, even though that's not a great term to use, but it's descriptive, you know, like say in a boardroom, sometimes in my own family at a family gathering, now that I'm in a mixed race family. Um, yeah, it, it happens all the time. What about you? I would say, yes, it happens to me still. These days, it's most often at work. In the past, it's been at school um, and maybe in personal settings, but now it's most often at work. So what does that feel like? It feels strange. It feels sometimes if I want to talk about race, that am I tokenizing myself? Am I going to be seen as a person, you know, who's overly sensitive about these issues? Um, Sometimes it feels a little lonely. Sometimes it feels like I have to speak for ethnicities of which I'm not a part, which is strange. Um, How about you? Um, I don't always notice it. Um, You know, it's not something that's always in the foreground of my mind, but there are times when it just kind of smacks me in the face all of a sudden, and it's always a little bit shocking because say you're in the room with a small group of people, you see everyone as an individual, and then sometimes something will come up in the conversation where you just become so viscerally aware of the differences between everybody in that context. But at other times, I mean, yeah, it's it, race isn't the, you know, my main thought at all times, right? So sometimes I just don't even notice. Mm-hmm. For me, when I've been the only one, it's always a temporary thing in that I live in Toronto. And so it's such a multicultural place that if I'm the only one for a day or an hour, I can always find a spot where I'm not the only racialized person. I'm not the only brown person. And in my mind... I have always been afraid of being the only one in a small town. When I've traveled to small towns, that to me feels much more strange than being the only one in a space in Toronto. And so exploring that was definitely something I was interested to do with this mm-hmm. show. Mm-hmm. I'm sometimes acutely aware that I'm the only racialized person when I'm in cottage country. <laughs> um, but what you say about Toronto is interesting because my experience of Toronto, I'm also born and raised here, is that my world has become whiter as my class has changed and as I kind of grew up and became a grown-up with a certain kind of job. And so um, I find that interesting. You know, geographically, I mean, within the city of Toronto, sure, I've changed neighborhoods, but I'm still in the same city. But the racial makeup of my world has really changed from the time when I was a kid where my world was very multiracial to now where I am often the only racialized person in the room. Although, like, you know, it just means that sometimes you have to um, seek out people a little more actively and keep up your social ties with, you know, your friends a little more actively, maybe as like a bomb, you know, like as a as a place where you can go to to have the conversations that like I feel I need to have in order to stay sane. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, what you say about small towns is so true. I also find 
the whole small town thing really fascinating because I also have never lived in one. And so we are traveling in this episode vicariously through one of our reporters. Uh, Anne Huey is our national food reporter. She reported an amazing story called Chop Suey Nation earlier this year. And she traveled to small towns because there is always a Chinese restaurant in every small town, which I thought in and of itself was a really interesting observation. I didn't realize that. And her story is so awesome, and it tracks the history of Chinese Canadians, and it tracks the history of immigration in this country. Mm-hmm. So that is coming up in the show. But first, I'm going to introduce you to an old friend. Hey, how are you? <laughs> One, two, three, check, check. Fritz, Fritz, Helder, Helder, Helder. He grew up as Rodney Morgan in Whitehorse, Yukon, but now he's a musician known as Fritz Helder. And he knows what it's like to be the quote-unquote only one in town. I'm black and my adoptive parents are black as well. They're both from Jamaica, Clarendon and St. Anne in Jamaica. And were there other black Jamaican families in Whitehorse when you were growing up? Um, (laughs) Or if there were, Fritz didn't know them. He knew his parents, his Aunt Joy, and his cousins, and that was it. Outside of your house, you didn't really see black people. No, not at all. We didn't see black people. We saw a lot of Native Americans, and there was a a very big um, Asian population as well. So I didn't feel like it was this black versus white thing or whatever. It was very much we were in an indigenous Native situation. So it was very interesting. It was very different. That is. Yeah. Yeah. I never felt other. I had a very placid, very easy experience with race growing up. So this is what you need to know about Fritz. I met him about a dozen years ago when he was juggling life as a musician and traveling the world as a backup dancer for Nelly Furtado at the height of her fame. And his dance aspirations all started when he was a little boy in Whitehorse. I was known as the dancer guy mm-hmm. before I was a black kid, which was... I think it was kind of, I was very, I was very lucky because I was always dancing at school talent shows, like putting on plays. And I was that guy before I was black because that was, I guess, more of a thing than the blackness part of it. My first introduction to dance was Scottish dance. Wait, you did Highland dancing? Well, I'm a Morgan, technically. <laughs> you know, our, my parents' name was Morgan, so we had our own tartan which was really hilarious. Like, and you like, wore it when you were high? Yeah. When we had wow. to compete, we had to, I was this little black kid with a Morgan tartan on. I had nothing else. It was the biggest jokes. So I went to these competitions. I'm like, obviously the only black kid and the only boy doing these, like, competitions. Wow. So, you know, I, I, okay. <laughs> I am picturing this. I love this so much, I'll by the way. I'll try to get my mom to send you, a, get a photo so I can send you, because she has photos. They're hilarious. I need to get in touch with Mama Morgan, yeah. and she's going to send me pictures. Yeah. Yeah. It's like all these different dances that we used to do and compete, and there's different levels. You'd go up, and you get medals. And... and so where would you compete? Mostly in Alaska. Yeah, you go to, like, Juneau and Skagway. So when you say you were the only black kid growing up in Whitehorse, I mean, you were like the only on so many levels. Yeah. That's why I got really used to it really quickly. You know what I mean? Because it was like, well, I wasn't going to stay at home and not do anything. So everything I did was like this weird, like, oh, you're going to Highland dance? That's weird. Oh, you're going to go join <laughs> ballet? That's weird. You know what I mean? <laughs> no one can take away my fire. 
Even though Fritz says that his childhood felt free, things became confusing as he became older and more self-aware. I remember very vividly, you know, summer days alone. My parents are at work, you know. Didn't have a lot of friends in junior high school. I remember not at that point beginning to kind of, you know, question my sexuality and, and, then, and then the race thing comes. You start to become more aware of your race and that was a very lonely, lonely experience. And then I started to realize my blackness as a teenager and my gayness. And that kind of, I think I pulled away myself because I started to become so hyper aware of how different I was. And that was incredibly lonely. Like really, 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 really lonely. <laughs> you know, but in a, in, a, in a good way, it gave me the time to kind of really focus on what I wanted when I got out of there. I knew that I was getting out. And Fritz did leave, but what he found when he got to Toronto was that it wasn't necessarily what he expected. I had a very naive viewpoint of how the big city world was going to be. I thought it was going to be very inclusive like it was growing up, but it was, I dealt with more racism here than I did ever growing up in school. So that was a big shock for me. Be having to confront my blackness or having to defend my blackness. I wasn't black enough in certain situations and I wasn't white, white or I was too white. You know what I mean? There was always something where I'd never had to ex explain myself before growing up until I got here. So that's a major difference, I feel like, yeah. That's incredible, actually. That is totally the opposite of what you might expect. Well, that's, and that's why I think the North is an incredible place. It's a very, people, unless you go there, you don't really understand. It's a very, I feel like anyone who goes there to live has a very expanded mind in the first place. Like, you, you don't take a lot of close-minded people to go that far away from everything. I think you're pretty adventurous or pretty open if you want to make that your home, you know? Whitehorse, do you think that you were allowed in a smaller place to be an individual? 100%. Yeah? 100%, and there are so many freaks in Whitehorse, like really creative, like hyper-creative people, intellectuals, you know, people running away from whatever they're running away from, you know what I mean? Like, so you get a, like a big mixing pot of just really expressive out there people. And that little Highland dancing adopted Jamaican black boy in Whitehorse found his first big break in Toronto. It's where he was continuing his dance training and he caught the eye of Nelly Furtado and then realized his lifelong dream of being a professional dancer. For four years we did world tours, like Top of the Pops, David Letterman, like we did everything. Princess Diana, like concert, Wembley, like massive. It's MTV Europe, MTV South America. It was a really magical time. Since then, Fritz has lived several lives in the music industry. His first band was called Fritz Helder and the Phantoms, that's when I first met him, and then he was in Azarian Third. They did house music and found success in Europe, and it was all going really well until they broke up. After Azari broke up, it really had, like, it was a flow to the confidence because it was such, an, such a quick breakup. It kind of just came out of nowhere. My ego and my confidence were, like, nowhere. Such a, build up again, find myself, and kind of find the freedom. So the music is a little bit hesitant, but I like the naivete and the innocence of it. I really like that. Now Fritz is a solo artist and he lives in Berlin. So I asked him where he's at now in terms of gauging the lonely level. Two, there's two prongs to the lonely level. Personally, I don't feel lonely anymore. Like I'm very fortunate to have amazing friends, but professionally, I still feel very lonely. <laughs> 
I still feel like I'm around a curve somewhere waiting for people to like show up and join the party. It's a very lonely place. And I think, again, it might be a racial thing. I feel like, I feel like with me, it's like the business wants me to be something very specific that I'm just not ever going to do. I'm not gonna go into that box just because I look a certain way. What do you think the box is? Well, it's the whole hip hop thing. It's like the whole urban, you know what I mean? Like, when I get it from a business point of view, it's so much easier to sell me as a hip hop urban artist, you know what I mean? Than having to make up some genre or some like thing. It's a harder push and people don't really want to work hard. <laughs> you know what I mean? In place of grown a rupee turn I'm going all went through me just like a ghost gone Toughness sauce, it consumed me just like a ghost gone Diamonds, rubies, just like a ghost gone Just like a ghost You talk about confidence, having it, losing it, getting it back, convincing yourself. I mean, it seems like you have a, a core of confidence that is just bottomless because when I think about the little black boy doing highland dancing in Alaska. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I do too, and I don't know who that person is, and I don't, and it's, it's one of those things, I think, as you get older, that you, you start to discover yourself more, and, but I'm also really impressed at that little four-year-old kid to deal with all of that with such grace and such, I was never an unruly kid, I was always pretty together, you know, and, and, it's kind of amazing to think that I did all of that and I was just so fearless with it. Man. Thank that you. Was awesome. This was fun. Yeah. yeah. I'm glad you thought it was fun. <laughs> it's always fun talking about myself. <laughs> He's awesome. He's so, he's so funny, but he's funny and thoughtful. He's great. Yeah, and you know, I always just kind of knew him as a musician. His whole white horse childhood was just a tidbit at the back of my mind, and uh, it was really such a privilege for me to kind of be able to ask him all those questions and learn and unpack, you know, what that kind of a childhood can be like. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was trying to draw parallels in my mind with his experience being the only black kid he knew growing up, and then his experience now in the music industry being the only one. Like, it's not just about geography. It's about what you do. Well, the dynamics of any industry, I guess, are interesting, because for both of us to speak about the times that we've been the only one at work, it comes from both sides in journalism, because on one hand, racialized people are perhaps not being hired on the other side, especially an older generation of immigrants, like I know for a fact that I, my parents and my uncles and aunts didn't really understand journalism as a profession or did not see it as a valuable profession. My parents actively discouraged me. Right. And I, for us, it was in Trinidad, um, journalism is very partisan. Like there are two newspapers and one sort of supports each political party and it just wasn't seen as respectable. And then I know also it's not seen as like, reliable or professional the way doctor and engineer are mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. what why did your parents not like it 
Well, um, I think it's because of what you just said. There's a reliability to a profession where you like go to school and you get a license. Mm -hmm. They essentially didn't want me to have to compete and go into a very competitive industry and then not get what I want and not be a success. It took me many years to understand that it's not that my parents didn't believe in me, but it is that they maybe didn't believe in everyone else. Right. They just wanted me to do my best and be my best without having to come up against major systemic barriers. And so there was a fear, you know. And so, you know, I give kudos to any parent who says to their racialized kid, like, you really can do anything because I think in Canada, to a large degree, that is true. For my parents, you know, personally speaking for our family culture, like it kind of took me to do it to prove to them that it was possible. But yeah, it can be difficult when you as the parent have the experience of being the only one and then you see that your kids are going to have that experience too. So to talk about The Only One a little bit more, today in the studio, we've got Anne Hui, who is the Globe's National Food Reporter. Hi. Hi. Welcome, Anne. Thank you. This past summer, we ran a story that you reported called Chop Suey Nation, all about Chinese restaurants in small town Canada. Yes. So this is a story that I've wanted to work on for a number of years now. I grew up in Vancouver, and I'm Chinese-Canadian, so I was really kind of spoiled by what we call authentic Chinese food, so food that, that resembles what you would have in Hong Kong or in China. And whenever I would drive through small towns and, and see some of these restaurants serving this Chinese-Canadian cuisine, so whether it be the sweet and sour pork or the chopped suey or, you know, deep-fried spring rolls, it, it was always very kind of foreign, and I would always wonder, how did this restaurant get here? So in pursuit of that question, you went to so many small towns. What was that road trip like? I drove 18 days straight across Canada from Victoria, B.C. all the way to Fogo Island, Newfoundland. That's crazy. Yeah, it was it was an adventure. <laughs> Sounds amazing. It was pretty great. And um, some of these interviews you did in English and some of them were done in Chinese. How's your Chinese? My Chinese is better now that I've done the trip. <laughs> so I would say that about 80% of the interviews were conducted in Cantonese, mm -hmm. uh, which is no surprise since most of these families were from the, the Guangdong uh, or Canton region of China. A uh, few of them were conducted in Mandarin, which was a real adventure for me. Um, and then a couple of them in English. This is a trilingual story you reported, <laughs> Anne. This is amazing. Stay in Chinese school, kids. <laughs> I could not stop reading this story. And, you know, we did talk about it before you went out on the road. And we all had one very simple question, which is, is it lonely to be the only Chinese family in a small town? So what did you find? I found a variety of different things. But where I want to start is with William Choi. Sometimes people don't want Chinese food, but it's good that you know there's some options for them. You know, hammers are made here, spring rolls are made here. He runs Bing's Number One in Stony Plain, Alberta. That's a town of about 16,000 people, about a 40-minute drive from Edmonton. Our Chinese food is uh, the curry Western food. William's restaurant is named after his grandfather, Bing Choi, who came to Canada in the 1960s, and William himself started working in the restaurant when he was 10. When William came to Canada, he was six, and he didn't speak English. And so what was that like for him? Well, he said that some of the kids played with him, but not all of them. The boys didn't really play with us at the beginning because we were different. 
but the girls are more accepting. And then until you know a year or two later, then they realize that we can play sports as well. Then it wasn't an issue anymore. I think it was just the first initial comments like you're different. It's like yeah. Then after a while, it's like oh, you're not really different at all, right? So he says it took him about two years to learn English. And sports. It took sports to make all the boys come together <laughs> and be friends. William actually took me on a tour of the restaurant. Yeah. So as kids, we, play, we spend a lot, a lot of time down here playing. The basement, which they basically use as a storage room now, you know, there's giant bags of rice and boxes of tea bags and that kind of thing. That was where he spent most of his time as a kid. If he had friends come over to play, they would, you know, play hide and seek in the basement. A lot of my friends were, were farmers, right? So they had their own chores and they had their own things, pitching hay bales or, you know, they got to drive quads and tractors at a young age, right? And I think everybody had their jobs to do. Was, and their jobs was on the farm. My job was at the restaurant, serving coffee, taking orders, you know, sometimes go help in the back. Um, yeah. So what about his parents? I mean, how did they learn to fit in? Well, I mean, they were grown-ups when they came to Canada. They were in their... I think 30s, so it, it wasn't as easy for them. But William told me they, they did get a lot of help. When my mom and dad came over in you know early 1980, right, customers would come and help them learn English and you know teach them like this is a coffee cup cup, right, and, and you know this is sugar, right, and just you know basic stuff. And that's how my mom and dad learned a lot of their their English and their conversation skills. That's so cool that the customers, I mean, the community really taught them how to speak English. Yeah, and I've, I heard from a few families who told me the same, that, you know, the locals or the regulars at the restaurants would come down and spend time teaching these families how to speak English completely voluntarily, just to, you know, be neighborly. To be welcoming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But so William says that his parents came in 1980, but he had also mentioned that his grandfather came in the 60s. Mm-hmm. So why that discrepancy? This was actually really common of a lot of the families, Chinese families who came to Canada in sort of the pre-early 20th century period. Uh, A big reason behind that is because of the legislative... Racism? Well, (laughs) legislated racism of the time. So you had the Chinese head tax in the late 19th century, um, and then the Chinese Immigration Act, which actually closed off immigration to Canada from Chinese people altogether until the mid-20th century. So a lot of these time gaps that we see is attributed to that. But also, it was just easier and cheaper for a lot of these men to leave their families behind. So you see a lot of instances where the Chinese men, the laborers who could work and make money, would come to Canada and live alone, and they would leave their wives and their kids back in China, where it was cheaper for them to live, where they could have probably a better quality of life, and just send money back to them. Um, And in a lot of cases, this is actually where, you know, a lot of the first schools and infrastructure in these regions of China were actually built because these men were sending money back to these otherwise very poor parts of the country and allowing them to, to build all of this infrastructure. Well, talk about diaspora. Like through these families that were separated, small towns in Canada and small towns in Guangdong province were actually very directly linked. It's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it seems like many families made the sacrifice for the benefit of future generations. Mm-hmm. And the same is definitely true for William's parents. They work really hard for a better life for, for their kids. Like there's, we have four of us and we've all got you know, houses, we've all got you know, families growing. And, you know, I'm even the mayor of a community that we grew up in, right? Like, it's, 
I'm even the mayor of the community. <laughs> I'm even the mayor. Did I forget to mention that? Yeah, William Choi is both the owner of Bing's Number One, the Chinese restaurant in Stony Plain. He is also the mayor of Stony Plain, Alberta. The elected mayor. He is the elected official representing the municipality or town. He is the mayor. Yeah. <laughs> That's Big amazing. Boss. Yeah. I mean, what did you think when you found this incredible individual who runs a restaurant and is the mayor? I thought I need to talk to this man and find out what the story is. So how long has he been the mayor? Well, he's been on city council since 2007, and he has been in the mayor's seat since 2010, so for a number of years now. Mm -hmm. And so he's the mayor, and he also still runs the restaurant? Correct. Um, so how does that work? Well, I mean, Stony Plain is a smaller town. It's 16,000 people. So it is a part-time job. But he did say that, you know, it's not uncommon for him to spend half the day at the restaurant cooking, wiping down tables, working the cash register. Uh, sometimes I juggle a few hours here, then go to the office for a few hours, and then back and forth. And then, you know, halfway through the day, he'll take off his apron, he'll put on a clean shirt, and he'll go down to town hall and he'll take meetings. And who's running the restaurant? His family. So he has, he does get quite a bit of help. His mom was in the back with him cooking. And in fact, his parents both still work there. And then um, when I got conventions and conferences, then I make sure my mom and dad know that and stuff. So then I'm actually out. So then I can't help out. But it's just uh, work as many hours as you can everywhere. So, uh, like, how much of your time is split? So would you be able to kind of quantify, like, half of your time? It's about three quarters of my time here, three quarters of my time at the office, <laughs> and three three quarters of my time with China with with kids and, and, and the family. So yeah, he's busy. <laughs> <laughs> and so he has three kids. Yes, three kids, and his wife runs a business of her own. So they're all very busy. Uh, but he did talk quite a bit about how running this business, which serves a very specific purpose in this community has helped him in, in performing this role as mayor. What, what, how has it helped him? Well, so he talked a lot about how the restaurant is the heart of the town where people come together and gossip and just hang out. And, and it's like a, a community living room. Right? Where everybody comes in, you know, it's very seldom do you not recognize somebody here. So it's always a good way to meet your neighbors and meet your people that you haven't seen in a couple of months. And it's like, hey... It's always good. And I think that's, that's just one of the reasons why you know, restaurants in small communities um, thrived, because that was the community meeting room where everybody met. I think that when we think of immigration to Canada, we often think about the big cities. We think of places like Vancouver. We think of places like Toronto. But what William really showed me is that not every immigrant wants to live in a big city. His family certainly didn't. In a small town, you're not lost in, in the whole mass of things. Right, whereas uh, in, in big city, for example, for Edmonton, right, it's very easy to get preoccupied doing other things that, that you kind of lose touch with your neighbors and stuff. Here, it's, it's not. Like, you know, people know if, if something's different. And so then they'll come and check it out, and then they're more than willing to give a hand. So William Choi does not sound like it's lonely to be the only one. He certainly didn't seem lonely when I went to visit him. I mean, his family now has multiple generations in Stony Plain. They have deep roots there. They know everybody. His whole family is there. I mean, he may have been lonely when he first arrived there at the age of six, but now he's the mayor. <laughs> so I'll give the last word to his mom, Jean Choi. 
At first, I asked her how Sony Plane has treated the family, and she said, good. Um, and then when I tried to ask her how she felt about her son becoming mayor, I asked her whether or not she had ever predicted that this might happen for him when he was young, and she said, no, I didn't think of it. Um, William, you know, she was working, she had four kids, and she said, how could I have ever even imagined something like this? His mom seems like she had pretty simple dreams or is a pretty humble person. Or maybe didn't even dare to dream that your kid could be mayor, right? Or it, it was just entirely outside of her comprehension. You know, so Jean Choi, she grew up in a little village outside of Guangdong and that this is where William was born and this was where he lived until he was six. To even imagine that he could grow up and become the mayor of a town in Canada, that it, it it's just so far beyond, I think, anything that any of these parents could imagine for their kids. Mm-hmm. Can I just say, though, that William Choi is obviously our superstar hero of the moment because, like, we just love him so much and he's this great mayor and a great character and a great story. But, you know, uh, the supporting role, if, if I may, um, has to go to Stony Plain because you know, it's the community that produces, you know, superstars. Yeah, I mean, he really feels like the community has given his family so much, and that's why he wanted to become mayor. And I'm really glad that I found William. I mean, his example is obviously a a very positive example of what can happen um, in these cases of newcomers moving into these tiny, tiny, tiny towns. Even when they're the only one. Even when there's no other Chinatown, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But as I traveled across the country and and even the prairies, I saw many examples of families who were maybe less established, who didn't have that kind of support network for them, um, and whose introduction to this country may not have been quite so smooth. Ah. Do you want to sit down? Yeah. Peter Lee and Linda Xie came to Canada 10 years ago. Peter, how old are you? 37. And took over the Diana in Drumheller, Alberta, two years ago. The restaurant itself has been there for 60 years. So this is me asking uh, Peter where he and Linda are from. He said that they're from a place called Da Tong. I've never heard of it. Okay. Which I would later find out is is close to Beijing. So is this is this what you expected when you came to Canada? Yeah. Something like that. It's too boring here, right? Yeah. Does he say it's boring here? He said it was too boring here. And before people in in Drumheller get uh, too offended by that comment, um, I should explain that Peter had just returned from a visit back to China. I think his view of of the city may have been slightly skewed, or of the town. How many people live in Drumheller? About 8,000 people. Um, And compare that to, you know, Beijing. Also, just speaking from personal experience with uh, parents who are ESL speakers, um, he may have thought boring meant, like, say, quiet or something with less of a negative yeah. connotation. Yeah, because I've worked in a five-star 
hotel and uh, I have another famous restaurant in our city. We have 800 people working in the restaurant. Yeah, so he was talking about uh, how he used to work at a five-star hotel and then he's talking about some of these other restaurants, how there were 800 people working there. In the kitchen? Uh, about 350 people. In the kitchen? Yeah. Just 350 people working in the kitchen alone. But 800 staff all around? Yeah, right. 800 wow. staff. Wow. Yeah, very big restaurant. Right. Yeah, that's big. <laughs> yeah. It's like the population of Drumheller in one hotel kitchen. Basically, yes. And then if you compare that to the Diana, it I mean, the contrast is, is so stark. I mean, you know, dimly lit, very, very quiet. Um, there's him, there's Linda. Sometimes their parents help out. Um, and I think they employ one cook. So that's a staff of maybe five compared to 800. And you're related to 80% of the staff. <laughs> and you're related, yeah. yeah. Eight kitchens? Wow. Yeah. Eight kitchens for just one restaurant? Yeah, wow. eight or ten. Wow. Very big. Wow. I didn't even know restaurants could be that big. Yeah. It's a little ironic that, that Peter and Linda came to Canada when they did. I mean, they've been here uh, for ten years, so basically the, the same time period where we've seen China's economy just booming um, at an unprecedented rate. Um, and in the same time that they've been in Alberta, they've seen the effects of the oil shock and so they talked about the effect that that has had on, on their restaurant and their business. It's 30% down. 30% down. Business has been going down at the same time that food costs have been going up. So he talked about the cost of broccoli um, in the past year going up from $30 to 60 or $90. So running the restaurant hasn't been easy for them. What, what do you miss about China? Everything. <laughs> Yes, we have lots of friends. We can play, you know, all kinds of stuff. It sounds really sad. I mean, it sounds like everything. What do you miss? Everything. I miss everything. I miss the food and my house. Like, it's just... And even the ability to speak Mandarin. No, Jilly, a drum heller. I asked Peter's wife, Linda, whether there are many Chinese people in Drumheller, and she said, which means no. Um, she said, basically, it's this restaurant, as in the Diana, and the other restaurant, the other Chinese restaurant, those two families, and that's it. How many Chinese people are there? How many? Uh, hard to say. <laughs> I think seven or eight people. That's it. Yeah. Seven or eight, she said, and that's the entire town of Drumheller. That sounds lonely to me. <laughs> it sounds really lonely to me because, I mean, they also are in a restaurant, so I guess they're kind of your competitors. And then also... Like, what if you don't like them? Like, you know, there's only four other people who you can speak to. You're sort of forced to whether or not you, you know, have anything in common. So if it is lonely, why do this? So I did ask Linda and Peter why they do this. She says that their motivation for coming here was for their children's future, to give them a better future. She talked about um, the schooling, the education system, and the environment in Canada, you know, everything being better than it would be for them in China. And what were your overall thoughts of, 
you know, when you were driving away from Drumheller and you were thinking about Peter and Linda and, and, and them in contrast to the Choi family, I mean, what were your thoughts? Just hearing Linda's voice now to me, I still feel like there's this almost sadness to her voice, but they also seemed tremendously self-aware. It seems to me like they understood what they were getting into in coming to this country. I mean, I think they understand that there is hopefully a payoff for them in the end, but because they're sort of just 10 years in, um, it's obviously been difficult for them. You know, it seems like they they acknowledge that it it could remain difficult for them for some time. Um, So it's hard to not, you know, meet these people and and feel moved by that. Mm -hmm. And did you hear more stories like Williams or more stories like Linda and Peter's? Probably more stories like Linda and Peter's. Timelines are very important in understanding their stories. So William, I mean, his family has roots in... Stony Plain going back, you know, 50, 60 years, whereas uh, Peter and Linda have only been in Canada now 10 years. And so they're much less established. You know, things are going to be much, much rougher for them. But I would imagine that for Peter and Linda's children, um, they could become mayor. Their lives would will be very different. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's one answer? I mean, is it lonely to be the only one? Is there one answer to that question? I don't think that there is one answer to that question. I think it depends on the person and their own experience. And their environment. And their environment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, neither William or Linda and Peter talk specifically about feeling not a part of their community for being Chinese. Um But having edited the story, I know there were other restaurant owners who did. And um, I mean, is that something that you want to talk about or that was common, like people experiencing over racism? Yeah, I mean, I I did ask that question several times, whether these people had felt overt racism or discrimination or other things. And for the most part, the answer that I, I got was either no or sort of an avoidance of the question. I mean, in general, most people aren't going to, to, to want to talk about, you know, unhappy experiences that they've been through. But especially, I think, in, in a lot of Asian cultures and certainly Chinese cultures, there's a reluctance to, to really share experiences that they might feel are, are shameful or negative. You know, I had to remember that I, at the end of the interview, would be leaving the town um, and coming back to Toronto eventually. And, and these people, they live there. And so even if you know, they had experienced some of these kinds of negative um, interactions that they probably would be reluctant to share them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, when I think about a small town versus a city, it's not that I think there is more of a chance that a small town or people in a small town would be racist so much as I think that in a city, you just have more opportunities to hang out somewhere else, right? So um, if you experience racism in a city, you just can go spend time with some of the other literal millions of people in that city, whereas in a small town of 8,000 or 16,000. You have to learn to get along yeah. in a smaller town. And not only that, but your business depends right. on these people continuing to come and, and spend their money in, in your place. So there's, that's a whole other twist on Thank you so much for sharing this story with us, Chop Suey Nation. It was it was really outstanding. Thank you, Anne. Thank you. And thanks to Denise, who was the editor on the story and who allowed me to do it. I mean, I think that this story 
it's one of those things that will exist forever. It's like a piece of Canadian history and, you know, kids are going to use it for their high school essays and stuff. Like it was, it was beautiful to read, but also really important. So Hannah, how do you feel about small towns now that we've heard Anne's stories? I was really appreciative of being let into their worlds a little bit because it just made me think about how important someone's environment is in terms of how much they'll thrive and then how much personal agency you have in terms of creating your own environment. Not everybody has that and it's definitely a class privilege that some of us enjoy. So I found myself, yeah, having a lot of thoughts about what is it like to be in a small town. But then also when I'm thinking about Fritz, from the beginning of our episode, I mean, he really blew my mind by talking about how people see you as an individual for your own skills and talents. And then how now he's like this global nomad who could live anywhere he wants. But in his industry as a musician, that's where he feels the most ghettoized and the most, you know, the stereotypes of what it means to be a black man or the kind of the most like they hem him in. Mm-hmm. I found that so interesting. I mean, my perceptions were definitely challenged many times throughout this episode. What about you? Yeah, I think hearing from all of them, so from Fritz and from William and from Linda and Peter, it's not really about the town itself, but how you as a person, like your own sense of isolation or your own sense of being able to control what you do and who you hang out with and how other people see you. And so... You know, Fritz, when he went to the city, that's when he felt like he wasn't in control of how people saw him. Um, And for Linda and Peter, it's like they just don't have an ability to connect with their neighbors in part just because of language. It's like the sense of control that you have over your environment. Um, Because I don't think, you know, small towns get a reputation for prejudice, but I don't think that they are inherently more prejudiced than a city. I think there's that much prejudice in a city, but in a city, there are just more people. And so the opportunity to just get out of what you don't want to be in and to find a community that's more accepting, I think, is just greater. Mm -hmm. I think it's really lovely to hear William's story and to hear he's the mayor. You know, he's obviously obviously a big part of Stony Plain. And it's really, it's a nice heartwarming story for Canada. Definitely. And something to think about the next time you're the only one in your boardroom or classroom or mm-hmm. at a particular bar, you know, you can think about what does that mean? Does it necessarily have to mean that I feel lonely? Mm-hmm. But doesn't it also mean that the people who aren't the only one, they have a responsibility, like they have a responsibility to make sure that everyone feels like they're included and heard and can be themselves. Definitely. Be like Stony Plain, Alberta, everyone. <laughs> That's the lesson for today. Thanks for listening to Color Code, everyone. Yeah. This week's episode was produced by us, Hannah Sung and Denise Balkasun. We've got Timothy Moore as our technical producer and Anne Hui as our national food reporter. Thanks to her for being here today and for her terrific story, Chop Suey Nation. Senior producer is Kevin Sue. Additional editing in this episode by Victoria Potashnik. If you enjoy this episode of Color Code, rate and review it on iTunes. Also subscribe while you're there and then share it with your friends and tell us what you think. 
you can be on our show with your comments. Tell us if you're ever the only one in the room or in your hometown. What's that like? Just record a voice memo on your phone and email it to us at colorcode at globeandmail.com. You can look us up on Twitter. I'm at Balkasoon. And I'm at Hannah Sung. We'd also like to thank the Toronto band Bonjay. We're using their song Stumble as our theme. And special thanks go out to our interview subjects, William Choi and family in Stony Plain, Peter Lee and Linda Shi in Drumheller, Alberta. And big thanks to Fritz Helder, who's originally from Whitehorse, Yukon. We're going to sign off today with his track, Force of Nature. Thanks so much for listening to Color Code. Oh,